Welcome back to Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. This is David Helvarg, and I'm here with my co-host, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein. Good morning, everyone. If you've been following the news about the climate emergency or living it, you're probably aware of our overheated cities and seas. I recently wrote about what's happening to the ocean for the LA Times, including the incredible heating of the waters off Florida that at one point in July hit a record 101 degrees, way too hot for the resident corals that make up the world's third largest coral reef. There have been many stories about scientists having to rescue coral plantings they were trying to use to restore the reef and temporarily relocating them into onshore tanks during this, the latest marine heat wave. The largest group involved is the Coral Restoration Foundation based out of the Florida Keys. And today we've got an opportunity to talk with Alex Newfeld, one of the staff and their photo mosaic and technology coordinator. And yes, we'll ask him what that means. But first, before we get into the immediate crisis and long-term prospects, Alex, why don't you tell us about your own earliest and first experiences with the ocean? Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I was born in California, and my first experiences with the ocean were going to the, uh, relatively speaking, very cold California coasts between uh, San Francisco and Monterey Bay. And I was always just sort of drawn to the natural environment, the ocean, as, as many of us are, I think, and always wondered what it would be like to to experience that undersea world for myself and and just explore really you know when you're a kid you you always want to go on an adventure you always want to explore and for me the ocean was always sort of this this frontier that i that i wanted to to get into you know physically and 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 really just see what was out there and so when i got into high school i had moved to indiana by this point and i was lucky enough to take a a spring break trip to the florida keys and it wasn't a, a spring break trip in the sense of most spring break trips to the to the keys it was a a class that my high school offered interestingly enough we came down to the keys for a week and we spent the week in the mangroves on the coral reefs in the florida keys national marine sanctuary learning about all the different tropical ecology aspects of this incredibly diverse system so that was my first introduction to the keys and to coral reefs that trip left a really uh, lasting impression on me obviously uh, and so when i enrolled at indiana university for my undergrad I knew I wanted to study biology. I knew I wanted to be a scientist, but I wasn't really sure yet what kind of scientist I wanted to be. If I wanted to go the academic route and, and get a master's, PhD, and do research, or if I wanted to do something a little more you know, in the field. And I was lucky enough, again, to stumble into a phenomenal underwater science program that Indiana offers and uh, worked with a, a professor, Charlie Beaker, who has a, a long history of work in the Keys with the Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary and, and with a lot of places around the Caribbean. And so I found this underwater science program and started taking scuba diving classes, getting my open water diver certification, then my advanced open water, and then my rescue diver. And it just sort of snowballed from there. And I realized, oh man, this is way cooler and more interesting for me than, than sitting in a lab, you know, and, and running statistical analyses. And so it was sort of at that point that I realized this is what I wanted to, to make a career out of and was lucky enough through those contacts to uh, eventually get an internship with Coral Restoration Foundation and then turn that internship into a full-time staff position. And that was about eight years ago now. So I'm still here and I'm still loving it. And you went to work for Coral Restoration Foundation. Now, I went to the Florida Keys as a teenager, 
until then, I thought I was generation too soon for alien worlds, but I got a mask and snorkel and here's living rocks and shoaling fish and hammerheads, uh, sharks. It's, it, it's this whole alien world of wonder. But over time, with, with continuous uh, ocean warming and runoff pollution and population growth, um, the Keys have been in decline. So some years ago, uh, the Coral Restoration Foundation was established to try and bring some of the corals back and, and tell us something about what, what CRF does and why. Yeah. So CRF was founded officially as a nonprofit in 2007, but our founder and really the community in the Keys had been witnessing and been aware of and trying to mitigate some of the declines that we've seen down here since the 60s and even 70s. So right now, Coral Restoration Foundation is the largest marine conservation nonprofit in the world that is dedicated solely to restoring coral reefs. And as you mentioned, we're headquartered in the Florida Keys, but we have sort of a sphere of influence that is international, that is global. We see ourselves as sort of an industry leader at this point in this field. And so we're very proud of the fact that we've been able to provide resources and in some cases experiences for fledgling restoration organizations in the Caribbean, in the Indo-Pacific. And, and we've had sort of a hand in growing this community as the need for coral restoration, unfortunately, has increased internationally. Before we go too far, Tell us a little bit more about corals, the relationship between the zooxanthellae and or the um, plants and the animals so people understand the biology. So I think a lot of people don't realize that coral is actually an animal. They think of a coral reef and they think of sort of these plant-like structures that grow on the seafloor. And so they kind of assume that corals are plants or, or something like that. Corals are actually animals. Their closest relatives are jellyfish and anemones. And so the coral polyp is, this, is a very small animal, similar to a, a small anemone, and it lives colonially with clones of itself. And these clones all secrete a calcium carbonate skeleton, a limestone skeleton that fuses together. And that's how you form these kind of intricate three-dimensional structures that we know of as a coral. And when you multiply that by thousands, millions, billions, you get a massive structure that we call a coral reef. So the coral animal exists as an animal with a rocky skeleton. And then it also has a plant, a, a photosynthetic algae, as you mentioned, zooxanthellae is the scientific name for it. These zooxanthellae live inside the coral animal's tissues and they're photosynthesizing constantly, which is the reason why the majority of corals live in shallow, clear, warm waters because they have access to a lot of sunlight. Now, those anthelae are photosynthesizing and providing sugars, food products to the coral animal, its host. So it's a really fantastic symbiotic relationship where the coral derives the majority of its food source from the zooxanthellae and the zooxanthellae gets a safe, you know, a, a place to live inside the coral tissues outside of the water column where they could be eaten by, um, by zooplankton and, and lots of other things. So, um, this relationship, I'm sure we'll we'll talk about, can break down when we when we run into coral bleaching in either really hot or really cold water temperatures, and that is not necessarily a death sentence for the coral, but it does really put the coral at risk, and that's something that we're seeing more and more regularly on reefs around the world, and that's something that's really disturbing. Now, before we get into the immediate crisis, people may understand reforestation that you can plant trees after a fire and, and a mix of trees that you can try and bring back a, a, a complex uh, ecosystem. I, I think most people 
haven't heard more or less understand the idea of of restoring corals. So maybe you can just walk through what Coral Restoration Foundation, its principles and practices. Sure. Yeah. So it's interesting that you mentioned reforestation. And I talked earlier about how a lot of people think that corals are plants. And it's funny because a lot of the same techniques that you would use in reforestation or plant husbandry, we actually apply to coral restoration as well. So that coral animal, when it grows into a multi-polyp colony, you can actually cut that colony in half and have two genetically identical colonies that will then heal over that scar and, and grow into two colonies, the same way that you would propagate a, a plant, for example. So we use this technique in our coral nurseries to grow the stock of different coral species and genetic strains that we use in our reforestation, our restoration projects at different sites. And I love that you said uh, a mix of trees when you do reforestation, because that is the principle that CRF subscribes to. We want to plant a mix of coral species and more importantly, a mix of genotypes, uh, these different genetic strains so that we're preserving what historically was a very, very diverse system. We don't want to get into the habit of planting monocultures. We don't want to try and, you know, paint ourselves into a corner where we're only planting one species or one kind of coral that really, really seems to grow well right now, but that may not in the future or, or may be susceptible to one specific scenario um, where we get a mass mortality event. So in terms of what CRF does, our practice is almost exclusively in situ, meaning that all of our nurseries, all of our work is done in the open ocean. We don't have aquarium systems. We don't have on-land tanks where we're growing and, and propagating corals. Everything that we do is in the open ocean. This has some pros and cons, right? On the pro side, you don't have to worry about water chemistry or feeding your corals or any of these other things that a lot of aquarium practitioners have to do. So that's great. Our corals grow really, really well in our nurseries. They grow really fast and we're able to propagate a lot of them because we have really almost limitless space in the open ocean. Now, the downside of that obviously is what we're sort of experiencing right now in South Florida, which is the water temperatures are getting way too hot. The system is a little too out of whack for these corals to grow. And so now we don't have a way to just lower a temperature knob and bring our tanks down to a suitable temperature. So there's pros and cons. Some groups will use a more land-based infrastructure. Some groups like ours will do a more ocean-based infrastructure. But the name of the game is really just growing the corals, propagating them asexually through that, that fragmentation, that cutting process. And then once they've reached a reef-ready size, a size of a colony that can survive on its own in the wild on a reef, you take it back to the reef and you physically attach it to the seafloor, to the substrate that you have. And you can do that in a number of different ways. You can use nail and zip ties. You can use marine epoxy. Um, there's, there's a growing number of techniques for this as the field has expanded and everyone is sort of tailoring their local system, um, tailoring their restoration work to the local system and what they have available to them. There are a number of corals from elkhorn and staghorn and brain corals. Which ones are you focusing in on in your geographic area? And when you answer that question, how extensive is your geographical area within the Florida Keys? So Coral Restoration Foundation works 
throughout the entire Florida Keys, which is about 110, 120 miles long. Um, if you're familiar at all with the area, it stretches from North Key Largo, which is about an hour drive south of Miami, all the way south to Key West. Uh, so we have four different production nurseries that are spread throughout that area, and they service in a given year anywhere from eight to about 12 different reef restoration sites that we have. In terms of coral species, we primarily work with the staghorn and the elkhorn corals that you mentioned. Those guys historically are the reef building dominant species in Florida. They grow really fast. They branch. They provide a lot of three-dimensional structure, fish habitat invertebrate, crustacean, and habitat. So they're really important. And unfortunately, we've lost 98% of their populations in South Florida since the 1960s. So we're dealing with a fraction of what we used to have, a fraction of what that natural healthy system used to be. We've also, in the last couple of years, expanded our restoration portfolio to now include some of those more slow-growing, massive, bouldering species of coral. So we've got a couple species of star coral that are right now part of our, our production and our restoration plan, but we also maintain in our nurseries about 20 other species, and those range from finger corals to brain corals, starlet corals. Um, it, it really is a robust sort of gene bank that we have. And the idea is that eventually all of those species will get propagated in the same way that we're working with our, our staghorn, elkhorn, and star corals, and we'll be able to restore a really holistic spread of coral species to these reefs. For our listeners, describe one, what a offshore coral nursery looks like. And then maybe you can describe, since all your work's in the water, how much volume or weight are you taking out of the water right now? And, and where are you relocating them since you don't have onshore facilities? Yeah, Coral Restoration Foundation operates four production nurseries, like I said. And each one of these nurseries has a very particular structure or method for growing the corals. It's called the coral tree. It sort of looks like a Christmas tree. Uh, it's a, a PVC trunk that uh, hangs vertically in the water column. And then intersecting this trunk uh, at 90 degree angles are fiberglass rods. And from these fiberglass rods, we hang coral colonies on pieces of monofilament fishing line. And so they kind of look like Christmas tree ornaments that you would hang from your Christmas tree. This whole structure then is tethered to the seafloor with uh, what we call a duckbill anchor. It's a, a sand anchor. And then they're floated with floats from the top of the tree. So this whole thing kind of sits in the middle of the water column and it has some give and some sway. And that's really important because when we get strong storms, hurricanes, you know, surges and water currents, the trees can sort of move with the flow of the water and the corals because they're suspended are able to freely move as well. So they're not at risk of breaking. They're not at risk of, you know, snapping off of the tree or, or colliding with each other. And they grow really, really quickly in this configuration because they have kind of 360 degrees of, of growth space that they can occupy. The nurseries themselves are in about 25 to 30 feet of water. And then the coral tree sits about five to 10 feet off of the bottom. And so this sort of mimics that natural uh, Goldilocks zone where the corals like to live, where it's not super shallow and they're right at the surface, but it's also not so deep that their zooxanthellae can't photosynthesize and they can't make use of that that sunlit water. And so right now, another thing that we're that we're working on, something that we really have never done before, and unfortunately speaks to the unprecedented nature of 
this summer is we're actually removing coral stock from our ocean facilities, from our ocean nurseries, and we're pulling them into land-based facilities, tanks and raceways, where the water parameters can be controlled and where we can hopefully harbor some of these corals to, to make it through the hot parts of the summer. So importantly, we have taken a couple of representatives of every coral that we have, every genetic strain, and we've moved them into a couple of different land-based facilities. One of them is right here in the Florida Keys. Another one is up in West Palm Beach. And so we have basically safeguarded the diversity that our restoration program has if the worst is to come for our in-situ nurseries. And that's really critical because a lot of the coral genotypes that we work with day to day, they were originally collected from wild colonies, from donor colonies out on the reefs. And those parent colonies have died since then. So in a lot of cases, the corals we work with, those individuals that we're growing and propagating and planting on the reefs represent the only remaining individuals of their lineage. So it's really critical that we safeguard them at all costs. We've never had to do this before because it's never been this hot this early in the summer. And so our restoration team, our field staff have undertaken uh, a massive effort in just the last couple of weeks to first identify and then remove those genetically diverse representatives. And now also we're shifting into phase two of that strategy, which is to take some of our most at-risk coral stock, some of the, the production corals that are maybe species that are most susceptible to bleaching or are in one of our southernmost nurseries where the water is already even a little bit warmer. We're taking that production stock, hundreds and hundreds of pounds of corals out of the ocean, and we're moving them into land-based tank space. It's such an effort, you know, just looking at what's happening with the temperatures, you're now hitting 101.1. That is hot tub temperatures. Mm -hmm. And it's really astounding and frightening. Um, and we know it's hitting Florida and the area that you're in. But step back a little bit. Is it happening in other Caribbean areas? Yeah, unfortunately, right now, the, the entire Caribbean region is at risk this summer, in part because of just the natural year-over-year -year increase in temperature that we're seeing uh, in this day and age with global warming, but also because this happens to be an El Nino year for us. So everything that we're seeing with just the natural progression of increasing temperatures is going to be exacerbated that much more because of the El Nino cycle. So Florida right now is definitely the, the, the hotbed, <laughs> no pun intended there, definitely the hotbed for this kind of of, of a heat wave, but we are already starting to see bleaching events throughout different parts of the Caribbean. And I'm afraid to say it, it's probably unlikely that any one country or any one reef avoids this situation completely this summer. It's just a matter of time. Okay. So how, how intensive now you're replanting trees, you go out with a cedar and you climb a hill. Right now you've got your sights and you're right now taking samples off the sites and bring them ashore. There's a lot of diving involved and, and a lot of uh, support activity. And maybe you could just describe what's been going on the last few weeks in terms of dives done and, and your own experience of the last period here. Yeah. Yeah. So our team is is incredibly skilled and you're exactly right. There's a lot of physically demanding effort that goes into this kind of work generally, much less when we're facing a, a sort of critical triage situation. So 
a typical day right now for us, our divers will go out on either our own boats, which can typically hold five or six people with all their gear and tanks and things, or we'll charter uh, a larger boat from a local dive operator and just take that boat out for the whole day. And we can put, you know, maybe 20 of our people on there with all of our gear. So we'll go out, we'll go to one of our nursery sites and the tools that we use are actually incredibly um, low tech. <laughs> so we've got, you know, some diagonal cutters, some chisels for cleaning the tree structures, little mesh bags, milk crates. We just use plastic milk crates that you can buy on Amazon or anywhere. And that's what we actually transport the corals in. It's all very low tech. And it has to be because we do this work every single day of the year. And it is a, like I said, a very physically demanding environment. And you need gear that that can take a beating, <laughs> frankly. So we've developed a very low cost, low tech, easy to use system for all of the work that we do. And so right now, when our teams are out there sort of collecting corals from the nursery and bringing them back for safekeeping, you might have a team of divers that jump in the water with a dozen milk crates. They go down to the trees. They use the diagonal cutters to cut the corals off of the trees. They stack them in the milk crates, and then we bring them back up to the surface and drive them back to land in bins of seawater. And then we just take them out of the seawater and we plop them into the, the tanks, the raceways that we have um, in, in the land-based facilities with the organizations we're partnering with right now. And then from there, we can sort of monitor their stress levels, their bleaching, you know, does it look like they're healthy? They're happy. Are they going to be able to be maintained here? So you are really busy right now and hopefully you'll save the corals and be able to get them out of the water into cooler environments. So what does the next six months look like? You're, you're taking them out. You have all these partnerships you have these mm -hmm. land-based facilities. Are there going to be changes in your system or will you then just repeat and return them when the water cools? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I'm not sure that we've at this stage maybe spent as much time thinking about that um, as we will certainly in the coming months. My guess would be that I think what this summer will come to show us is the importance of a multi-dimensional community of partnerships down here. So I think what we will probably see is not necessarily a shift in CRF's work from, you know, strictly ocean-based to strictly land-based or even a kind of hybrid mix, but rather you'll see the intentional development and preservation of these relationships with organizations that are different than ours so that we can sort of call on each other if any one of us gets into a situation where we need help with, with our line of work. And I think that that is really, really important and really inspiring for a community of practice, a field that has so much being thrown at it right now. The fact that we have a community here that we can rely on and call on each other and, and just sort of help each other out because we're all in the same boat here, that's really powerful. And so the question of how confident I am in coral restoration being able to, to achieve its goals is is a bit of a tricky one to answer. We know that coral restoration is required to keep coral reefs from going extinct. There's no two ways about that now. If you asked me that question maybe 10 years ago, there might be a little bit of debate in the community about that, but we've reached a point now where even if we turned off the fossil fuels tomorrow, even if we just stopped going to coral reefs, even if we stopped polluting them, if we stopped touching them, if we stopped interacting with them, they would not come back. 
on their own. And that is, that's a really sad statement to make, but it is the truth at this point. So fortunately, governments and management agencies around the world are coming around to that concept that you have to engage with the ecosystem. You have to do active restoration now if you want to preserve anything, if you want to try and bring anything back. It's not going to happen naturally on its own, no matter how hands off you try and be, no matter how little influence you try and exert on an ecosystem. So coral restoration is a necessary step in preserving these ecosystems. And so it's something that has to be done, has to be undertaken in some capacity, you know, whether or not it is quote unquote successful. Because right now we're in a point in time where it looks like there's very slow movement, if any real movement on international climate policy, right? And so we know that going forward, the coming years, things are not really going to get appreciably better for coral reefs and for any natural ecosystem in the world, right? But I still have hope, and I think we have to have hope that eventually we will get to some point in time where there is action on climate policy, where there are appreciable changes being made. And at that point, you have to have conservation and restoration practices ready to go, because that's when they can really make an impact. And the only way you're going to arrive at that state is if you do conservation now, if you keep people engaged and invested in restoration now, even if not every coral that you plant survives. And so long as we're maintaining the diversity and the resiliency of these systems, that I think should be success enough for us. Well, Alex, we we know we are in a very tough situation with the ocean, and we are delighted that Coral Restoration Foundation is working so hard and has this wonderful partnership. We wish you lots of luck. We are tracking the situation, and we appreciate you spending time with the Rising Tide Ocean Podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. This has been a pleasure. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier, co-hosted by David Helberg and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein, with support from Natasha Benjamin and Ellie Curla. Rising Tide's editing services and technical support is provided by Studio Cape May. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbarg. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast at bluefront.org or download it from Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves are free. The sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea. Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear. It's true, it's the blue frontier. Tear, tear. Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier. Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.